Welcome back to the Revolution in Ideology podcast. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And we are here today to do our film review of Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, we had done, I don't know, at this point, three, four, maybe even five months ago, maybe even longer than that, a preview based on the trailer. And in that preview, we promised an actual review of the film. And we did not necessarily get around to that until Dante <laughs> Young, who is joining us today, decided to call us out. Uh, so we decided to invite Dante to help us with this review. We also asked um, a film expert, uh, Stefan Huddleston, who also teaches about film and history, specifically civil rights history, to come uh, fill in some of the historical and narrative gaps that perhaps the film overlooked. Um, we want their two expert critiques, uh, perhaps most so, more so than myself or Nick's, um, for today. Anything you want to chime in with, Nick, before we let Dante and Stefan introduce themselves? Uh, no, not yet. Okay. Well, Dante, why don't you kick us off? Who are you? What are you about? Why yeah, you what's up, everybody? I'm Dante. Um, I'm not an expert in film, but I do enjoy watching films. <laughs> but Civil Rights. Yeah, well, okay. Very well. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an expert. Well, see, I won't even call myself an expert in Civil Rights, but like, I, I would just say I'm a, I'm a part of the struggle. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> okay. I mean, I don't call myself an expert on anything, so <laughs> yeah. But but I am going to, to, to school too. to become mm-hmm. a sociologist. Uh, I go to UCCS, and uh, I write a little bit, and I do like watching like film critiques on YouTube. So I think if I can get my PhD in like you know YouTube University, I think that would qualify. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's me. Perfect, perfect. All right, Stefan. Yeah, so I'm uh, Stefan Huddleston. I am a historian, and I, uh, in my undergrad, I studied history and film, um, and then I went on to my graduate studies, and I now teach um, history and humanities, uh, and as a matter of fact, in relation to this film, I am teaching a course right now, co-teaching a course on the black and brown power movements, and as a matter of fact, the, the film that we are going to be discussing, we're going to be screening in class next week and uh, having a discussion on this film in class. And uh, we just went over uh, some material in class on Fred Hampton. Um, so I do uh, histories of marginalized groups and uh, particularly perceptions of uh, various marginalized groups in film are one of the big areas that I cover in, in the things that I study and teach. So. I want to say, like, yeah, Stefan is the only one here with any of the actual like film chops. The rest of us are just making stuff up as we go along. But <laughs> we just like to watch them. Yeah, I mean, I love film, but I don't have any actual training in film critique or anything. I do want to say, like, I, I love Jared's like history yeah. cl- history classes and stuff, but like that class kind of sound hype. Like, I would love to take the class. I'm out of classes now. I can't take no more. <laughs> like, but I would I would have loved to take a class like that. I won't get jealous. You can take Stefan's classes. It's been fun so far. Uh, all right. Well, I mean, let's kick this thing off. So I think what we can do this time is is kind of break down the film parts and then maybe break down the historical, if there were even really any oversights. I think we're all in agreement that this film did probably as, as, as well as it's going to do in terms of trying to hit on most of the history. So we'll probably spend more of our time talking about the narrative and what it means within the current um, zeitgeist for, for lack of a better term. So let's, uh, let's start with that. Um, I don't know which one of you wants to go first, but in terms of like narrative, why is, let's even start with the film's production. Why is even making this film a big deal? 
Uh, I mean, I'll dive in. I, I think that um, one of the important things and one of the things that um, I've been doing a lot of um, research on recently and a lot of things that I've been looking into is that there's this concept in um, in uh, study of media um, and it kind of brings together um, some sociological concepts. It kind of brings together um, several, uh, multi, it's multidisciplinary ideal. And this is the concept of the media exemplar. And the media exemplar is things that we see in media that uh, are given by Hollywood or whoever is making these productions as prime examples of America. And these have a great deal, these media exemplars have a great deal of influence on the way Americans perceive the world around them, particularly given that, um, that this media exemplar concept and several other studies show that in the absence of information to the contrary, people will take what they see in films and television to be reality. So for instance, um, there's been a lot of discussion recently, as, as you can imagine, about uh, police dramas and the way police dramas portray police as almost always catching the suspect, always, almost always um, catching the correct suspect eventually by the end of the episode or the end of the, the film. And when they do cross the line, when they do bend or break the rules, we know as the audience that they only do this to people who uh, we know to be guilty. And so this creates a perception and studies have shown that this creates a perception that when the police do this in the real world, that the person must have deserved it. It, it, it contributes to this idea that, 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 that uh, the police are in the right. And so there's a particular narrative in, in America that this is, there's, a, there's a right way and a wrong way to protest injustice in America. Um, and we're told time and time again that Martin Luther King's way, or at least the myth of Martin Luther King's way, is the perception of the way Martin Luther King did the peaceful protest, is the right way. And that the way that other organizations, the Nation of Islam, the Black Panthers, is the wrong way. And so this film is important in challenging all of those narratives. And I think it does a, uh, a particularly good job of challenging those narratives. Yeah, I, I think I think I love that uh, that you brought that up because I know this it's this Bell uh, Hooks quote that goes something along the lines of uh, pop culture is where the pedagogy is happening, right? So if if we are learning that there's other ways to protest to speak out, um, then we can see that like the like you said the, just the martin luther king jr way of protesting or anything like that isn't necessarily the right way or the only way we can we can do stuff other ways like building building up our communities and stuff like that so i feel like the production of this film the 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 fact that this film was made creates this narrative that um there's other alternatives besides the one that the state uh favors i feel like I think it's a really important point too that this film 
is really the first time that many people, many generations probably will ever be, have ever been exposed to the Black Panthers and Fred Hampton, et cetera, right? If you're not a historian, if you're not into civil rights struggle uh, pretty deeply, et cetera, like you might never even heard of Fred Hampton. You might not know a lot of the details of the Black Panthers, or if you do, you've only gotten a very one-sided narrative that portrays them as, you know, aggressive and violent and so forth. When in reality, the narrative is much more complex than that. Uh, and we know, like we saw in the film, right, there's, there was breakfast programs and like uh, medical clinics and like so forth. They were, they were a community first organization and really only uh, were supposed to be violent as a result of self-defense, right? And so this film, I think, does a really, really good job of portraying the Black Panthers in an accurate and fairly well-balanced manner compared to sort of what the other side of the narrative is that we've been getting for so long. So if this film is the first time that someone is exposed to the Black Panthers, I think it's actually a really, really good, you know, sort of first exposure, like a jumping off point for them to learn more if they so desire. And the fact that it was made by a major motion picture studio, I think it's Warner Brothers, uh, produced at least or distributed. Yes. Um, that's huge, right? Because one of the things that Jared and I talked about in our analysis of the trailer was a, a really, really significant hesitation. We were sort of wary of how much the studio would force the story to be modified and really shape the narrative of Hampton and the Panthers. But I was like super, super surprised when I watched it that like hardly at all. It, it was fairly uh, accurate as far as I'm concerned. Even like the historical accuracy was on a level that really, really shocked me. Were there like minor, you know, names changed and like events changed and a few events invented and stuff like that. But overall, it was actually really, really accurate as well. So yeah, I was just shocked that a major motion picture studio put out something at this time that was so accurate. That's really, really important, I think. The next question I kind of want to put out there for, for all of you is what about um, hero manufacture and representation, especially historically, right? The United States, the way we teach history, uh, say this in every class, obviously, it's a very obfuscated um, history filled with wrongful omission. Foucault said we need to exhume a lot of that if we're post-structuralist, the way we look at it. But one of the things that kind of bridges all gaps in a lot of historical narratives is this idea of great man or great woman theory, that there are these great leaders and, and so on and so forth. Now, whether we buy into the notion of great man or great woman theory, I, I don't even want to like unpack that right this second. But if those great men or great women are now not just white, cisgender, uh, uh, usually Protestant males, usually wealthy males, and we're starting to change the demographic, do you think that is helpful in perhaps changing um, narratives moving forward. So merely presenting a U.S. audience with new heroes that look different, that act different, that are, do you think even just having the existence of those, whether or not the movie's accurate, which we'll dig into in just a second, is that also a step in the right direction? I absolutely. I no, think. Go ahead, Stephanie. Okay. No, go ahead, Dante. I absolutely yeah. do think that's important um, because I, I let my, uh, well, uh, my, me and my niece, we watched it. Um, on HBO Max. I had watched it in, in the movie theater, but then I watched it with her um, on HBO Max. And it was wild because she didn't know about that women were even a part of the Black Panther 
um, struggle. You know what I mean? So not even Fred Hampton. Like she, she didn't take away the fact that Fred Hampton was in the movie. What well, she did, obviously, right? But it was just like the the multiplicity of identities that were in that film to her had an impact that I didn't see, right? So I feel like when we have a movie like you know Judas and the Black Messiah, it show it 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 reflects. It's a reflection of what reality is, right? Because the, re- the reality is we have heroes that are not just white, straight, cis, all that stuff in our real world. And we have to reflect that in the media that we consume so that when people like, even though like, I feel like movies are just like symbolic, like gestures of how we can uh, progress in society and stuff like that. I feel like it is showing something that is a part of our reality that people that look like us are doing the work that we see on film and television and stuff like that. So that's why I think that that is very, really important. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I agree with that totally. And I think it's important to note that when you're talking about media in America, particularly television and, and film media, that representation of marginalized groups comes in stages. And, and this is true in any marginalized group that you look at. So initially, when we see, for instance, if we take in relation to this film, when we take the first time we see African-Americans in cinema, they are not well portrayed in early in early cinema. They are the servants. They are the comedy relief. They are the thugs. And 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 then we go through these transitions. They're the, they're the you know the butt end of jokes and things like that. And then there's a progression that that it goes through. And again, you can look at any marginalized group and watch this progression happen in 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 a similar manner to where then you start to get um, you move from that sort of representation into tokenism, where you say, oh well, we're going to start uh, putting these people in other roles. But again, they are very tokenized roles that they are placed into. And then you have to go all the way through this, these steps of this progression till you start to get like, you know, what they would call in Hollywood meaty, meaty, relevant roles that are uh, multifaceted roles. And all roads with media lead to and from Hollywood. So everyone is either doing things the Hollywood way or they are reacting to Hollywood, whether that means that they are imitating Hollywood inverting Hollywood tropes, subverting Hollywood tropes, whatever they're doing, everyone is making that reaction. And so you'll see these, these things are all in relation to that. And so I think that for, for representation's sake, that we have to go through that stage at some point where we have to tell those great man slash great woman stories about other groups other than, you know, as Dante put it, white, cisgendered, um, straight men, right? We have to tell stories about these other groups. And then hopefully, as we move on through that progression, then we can start to get into, and we have in some places, get into some meatier, wider roles. And I think this film uh, at least gives us some of that, because certainly Fred Hampton was not a perfect individual. He had his flaws, and I think it shows a little bit of that. And of course, Fred Hampton is not going to be necessarily popular with everyone who watches this film. He was black. He was an unabashed revolutionary and he was also an unabashed communist. And so um, 
he uh, espoused these ideas that both then and now are not popular within certain American circles. So Nick, um, I, I want to add on that. What, what Stefan got me thinking about was this idea that we've talked about before, Vine Deloria's cameo theory in mm-hmm. history, how um, people of color or women um, tend to only perform cameos in history. We're not even talking about film now, the way we teach mm-hmm. history. Um, I forget the exact quote, and I don't have it in front of me, but he uses some um, derogatory terms often used for for different populations, different exploited populations, but they only perform cameos in the greater narrative of white exceptionalism, uh, yeah. white male exceptionalism, I should be uh, uh, saying. So even though this film is, I mean, it is a history film, do you think that this film has potential, like others before it, like an X in the 90s or something along those lines, to also push the way we tell historical stories, not just stories out of Hollywood, but do you think it has the ability to maybe change some sort of future um, storyteller who watches this film as a young person and then goes on in scholarship and begins to start telling the stories of our past um, on an academic level. What do you think? A hundred percent. I think it's a reflexive relationship between academia and the media where the history that exists in academia, let's say as an example of the Black Panthers, very clearly informed this film. And then this film will reach a much wider audience, let's be honest, because not that many people will digest academic histories, but they'll go to the movies, especially, you know, children and like Dante's niece and like whatever, right? They'll take away things from this film that they wouldn't have otherwise gotten. And hopefully that will motivate some of them eventually to, not that the film's going to motivate them to be a historian, but some of them will then get curious about other histories and they will either research more or some of them might actually become historians and say, wow, there's a whole history out there that I didn't even know. I want to, you know, I really want to make that my life. I want to go look into these histories and I want to tell them myself. And then those new histories will inform new films, right? generations from now at least in theory and hopefully also i think this film has a really important role where it had a huge amount of success right it had it, it was you know released during covid and that kind of threw things off a little bit for its like revenue but i think for its popularity i mean it was viewed by millions of people and the awards that it got you know really garnered it some attention So definitely just in the Hollywood world, right, people are now saying we can make films like this that challenges the standard narrative with non-white heroes, uh, you know, people of color that are in the leading and supporting roles, and they can be successful. They will be viewed by millions of people. And so we can start telling these stories even more widely than we had before. So I think it's a landmark film as far as that is concerned, not that it's the first, but it's definitely the first in a series of films that hopefully will motivate, you know, new directors and writers and producers and so forth to start telling these stories on a, a, a more frequent level, right? Like you mentioned X in the 90s and so forth. It would be great if Judas and the Black Messiah wasn't just a series, you know, part of the series of, wow, these really great films come out every five years. It's this should be a part of the Hollywood narrative all of the time. These films should be frequently made at this level with this budget, with this caliber of script and director and actors and so forth. Uh, That should just be a regular part of the narrative from here on out, you know, if we lived in a perfect world. And I think this film plays a really important role in that. I've I've heard something to the effect that like the reason why films with like people of color don't get produced at the rate that they should be is because studio direct, like studio executives and stuff like that, 
are worried about the international appeal of like having a black person be the main character or um uh, a latinx person being the main character or something like that and they they they, they talk about how it will that actually translate to like international audiences so instead of just doing the movie and just trying to just see you know what i mean they they just don't do it at mm-hmm. all and that does a disservice to everybody the film industry in general and that does a disservice to the people who could consume this type of media and find different messages embedded within them so i think that's just garbage that capitalism um also stifles create creativity Which is kind of interesting point because some of the controversy this film had before it was released was the casting of Daniel Kaluuya as Fred Hampton because he is British. People were up in arms about this, that they casted a British man to play Fred Hampton, right? This like iconic American revolutionary. It was basically put to bed when, you know, Kaluuya said, yeah, Fred Hampton Jr. approved my casting. So like, what else is there? You know what I mean? But you do bring up a very good point that um, that that kind of casting decision can help sort of to, you know, bridge that international divide a little bit, at least in theory, if you're like a Hollywood producer, perhaps. But yeah, interesting point. Two I things think, like, as, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Stefan. I was just going to say, I think it's important to note, too, one of the uh, things that we talk about or one of the things that we should bring up in, in kind of a, a peripheral um, sense when talking about this film is that uh, there is this issue of dealing with Hollywood and its perceptions of uh, black films with predominantly black casts. And I think it's absolutely vital to note that, you know, we recently had the whole, you know, Oscars so white uh, movement and everything like that. Mm -hmm. So it's important to note that the film is called Judas and the Black Messiah. Judas and the Black Messiah. And so this is referring in particular to the two, um, the two actors who play, uh, you know, the, the, um, the, the lead roles, Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield, right? They are both nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Mm-hmm. Not Best Actor, either one of yeah. them. Best Supporting Actor. They are the two titular characters of this film. And they get best. Now, now Daniel Kaluuya wins um, the Academy Award uh, for best supporting actor. But I think it's absolutely vital to note he didn't get a best actor nom. He got a best supporting actor nom. Yeah, I read an article critiquing Hollywood. Yeah, I read an article critiquing that decision to submit them both as best supporting. And they were basically like. You know, if they're both supporting actors, then who's the film about? Like, what, uh, right, you know what I right, mean? Like, right, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think um, first, the, the two points coming back full circle, um, the debate regarding um, the casting choice. I mean, it's as if we're insinuating that um, people of color did not also experience racism in Great Britain right. Or, right. or throughout right. Europe uh, is, is a completely like laughable right thing. But, mm-hmm. but 
moving past that, um, I think what Dante brings up is, is actually kind of interesting when he, when he brought up international appeal and some of the hesitation in casting people of color, whether they be um, black, uh, Native American, Latinx, whatever, that are unique to, I guess, the U.S. experience, or we want to assume it's unique to the uh, U.S. experience. Um, and the thing that, that immediately jumped out when you said that to me is, wow, colonialism is really powerful yeah. still. Um, because that's yeah. the colonial mentality. If you're worried about something like Latin American or Asian or even sub-Saharan markets, and you think they would still prefer to see white faces, um, and maybe they will, maybe maybe the box office actually shows that they do. But that, if that's the case, it shows how powerful colonialism really was, um, if yeah. they're still preferring that, right, based on the ideas of things like divide and conquer and divide and rule and all that stuff that has been socialized into populations on a global level for the better part of five centuries, right? So mm-hmm. um, anyway, that, you- that's, that's what immediately came to my mind is if you can say to another exploited people in the Middle East or in Southeast Asia or in Latin America, and they would still rather see a colonial <laughs> that's, face. That's why. That's powerful. That's wild. About- yeah, yeah. I, I, think yeah. You, I think you hit on something. Um, very, very vital there. Um, one thing I can certainly speak to in that in that era, in that area, is that um, while there is not necessarily globally a uh, an image leaning toward uh, um, seeing colonial faces, there is certainly a huge um, tendency in certain parts of the world, particularly in Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia towards lighter skin. And there is a, and there is a great favoritism uh, given to the English language. For instance, it is, it is almost a status symbol in a lot of films coming out of South Asia in particular to have um, actors and actresses who can flawlessly switch mid sentence between English and either Hindi or Tamil or one of the uh, whatever language the film, you see that very frequently in in Bollywood films. And it's almost like a status symbol. If you can do that in this flawless kind of, of way, it's kind of a, 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 a a hip status symbol that you can, you can pull that off. Um, And so, yes, there is this grand power um, of colonialism um, that still lingers in the global film industry. And then I think, there's something to be said about what we were just talking about, about the uh, the outcry about the choice for this lead role, that it goes right back to that divide and conquer strategy. Well, you're not the right kind of black or you're not the, the right shade of black or on and on and on that keeps us mired in these divisions yeah. that uh, 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 that they that they put upon us. That, that the you know colonialism put upon us rather than looking up at the oppressors and saying hey that's the problem and and it's it's almost kind of ironic because that's the very sort of thing that would have uh, absolutely I think uh, driven Fred Hampton crazy because here's a man who's going in and uniting with uh, um, other groups other oppressed groups Puerto Ricans he's going in and uniting with um, uh, um, poor white Appalachians who refer to themselves as white trash with the young Patriots and are, are, um, you know, have on right on their, uh, right on their, their magazine, they have the Confederate flag. And Fred Hampton says, I don't care. I don't care about that. We need to set that aside. There's a bigger, there are bigger fish to fry here. Um, and so I think that kind of, uh, uh, factionalism, uh, would have just infuriated Fred Hampton, you know, as a, 
as an individual. Here's a man who a year after the Stonewall riots is pinning a letter to women and homosexuals and saying that we are all oppressed. We need to put aside this nonsense and come together. So let's talk about that. Let's shift gears now. We've done kind of a lot of dancing around the film. Let's talk about the film itself. What do you all think about the story and how it was told? Um, given that everybody um, on this call knows knows the life story of Fred Hampton pretty well inside and out. We all teach it uh, in one way or another. So what do you think about how they did with this film? Um, again, especially that part that I want to focus on towards the end, the idea of, of Fred's unique ability to bridge gaps. I think that's kind of how I want to want to go towards the end of this. Like it, we can we could argue that this is also a critique of current movement, but I'll, I want to save that later for late for later. How do you think they did with the story? Well, first off, I think it was incredible, but okay. my one critique is that I think it downplayed, probably not intentionally because they were just focused on the, you know, the rest of the story, but downplayed the scope of the FBI, how much they really had it out for the Black Panthers and specifically eventually Hampton himself as an individual and the entire just how widespread and how many resources were spent on the COINTEL program to infiltrate specifically the Black Panthers, jeopardize their legitimacy, and just really, really take them down. You know, we see J. Edgar Hoover, and we see some of like that kind of quote-unquote behind the scenes of what this is happening. But I think that it really like that to me is like the antagonist in the film is the FBI and the them t- going against the, the Black Panthers. I know it's supposed to be framed as like Hampton versus O'Neill, the informant and right. But really, like when I think back to the history and how I tell it is the Black Panthers and really any social movement group at the time versus Hoover's FBI. You know what I mean? So that's my only complaint. But other than that, I think they did an incredible job with the story. And, you know, as much as you possibly can to make, you know, this large swath of history with a lot of characters, you know, work in a film, I think they did as best as anyone could expect. Exactly. I I think it was a part in the film where uh, Fred Hampton had met with the the other uh, group. Um, I forget forget their name at the moment. Um, Yeah, in the beginning, where... where, uh, O'Neill had stole one of the dude's car mm-hmm. and he pointed he found them out in the meeting. Anyway, he had met them. Yep. And oh, and yeah, they, yeah. they had uh, a pulled a paper out that was like, Did you write this about us? And it was like, No, we don't like it was like you jive turkeys and all this stuff. It was like how insidious <laughs> <Yeah>, how <exactly. laughs> insidious like the the uh the FBI was in relation to how they tried to dismantle relationships between um, different groups and not only races between different groups, but within the group itself. Um, so I, I think I agreed that they did downplay that. Well, I, I don't want to say downplay it, but they didn't highlight it as effectively as they could have uh, highlighted it. Yeah. I mean, I guess the whole film is about the FBI's infiltration yeah. of the Black Panthers, yeah. but still, you know what I mean? I think, uh, yeah, I think that's vital. Uh, I, oh, I do want to correct myself. I, I misspoke and I said, that it was in, uh, Hampton who wrote that letter to women and homosexuals. It was Hugh P. Newton. I, I mixed those two up. But mm-hmm. um, anyway, um, the Huey P. Newton shared a lot of Hampton's views about uh, um, where the Black Panther should be. And that's important um, because there was a schism in the Black Panthers about the direction they should take. And Huey P. Newton was uh, on the side of, of 
these, uh, as was uh, Fred Hampton, on the side of these programs like the Breakfast for Children program that crops up all across the nation. And so if you look at the large data dump um, that uh, is under the Freedom of Information Act of these COINTELPRO documents that are, there are thousands of pages of, of documents from this program um, that you can find um, online because of this large Freedom of Information Act request. Um, at least in the sections that haven't been gone over with the uh, the government black highlighter, the, um, the the program is a huge thorn in the side of of the FBI and of people like Ronald Reagan when he's governor of California. They hate this program and they're doing everything they can to uh, discount this program. They are. Uh, putting out rumors of violence at these things. They are putting out rumors that the food is tainted or poison. They are creating fictional comic books that are um, espousing violence against police and saying that the Panthers are handing these out to children. Um, they even propose at one point that they're going to leave ammunition that is designed to explode in, in guns that's that's been tampered with so that it's going to blow up the firearms and leaving it outside a uh, Panther um, headquarters around the nation and stuff like that. They are they are pulling out all the stops and they're talking about these in these uh, these at the time confidential FBI documents about um, how much this program and they even at one point say in some of the documents that this program is so popular in parts around the nation that they are at a loss of what to do and they're essentially opening it up to conversation uh, within internally within the FBI. What do we do? Give us some ideas. How do we stop this? Think about that. They're, they want to stop a program that is feeding hungry children around the nation because it's an embarrassment to them and because of, of its being run by the Black Panthers, who, of course, they have labeled as an extremist uh, black nationalist hate group. And so they are um, absolutely infuriated. And I think um, it's important to note that in the in the context of this film of just how far the FBI was willing to go. And I think the film shows um, a little bit of that, but I highly encourage anyone who's interested to look at the um, freedom of information um, documents of, of the COINTELPRO program, because it just really goes into some frightening, frightening depths of the lengths that the government was willing to go through, uh, willing to go to, to stop this program and eliminate. And then it's important to, to note, and we talked about this actually in the class that I'm doing on Black and Brown Power right now yesterday, about the word neutralize. So the, the FBI uh, uses this word neutralize. And neutralize is something something that happens when you look at oppressed populations around the world, whether you're talking about apartheid South Africa, whether you're talking about here in America, whether you're talking anywhere in the world, one of the things that you'll see is that there's two extremes that happen. Sometimes you will see laws and language that are that are so specific that it's almost comical in trying to address a particular issue that they've identified. And then the opposite issue of that, and that's the case in this word neutralize, is that they use extremely vague language so that they can apply it to any situation. What does neutralize mean? Does neutralize mean um, eliminate them? Does neutralize mean tear down their buildings or burn down their buildings? Does neutralize mean kill them? Well, yes, all of the above. It's this wonderfully vague word that allows them the latitude to do whatever it takes to eliminate what they see as a threat. 
Yeah, I think that's that's one of my main critiques as well, is this idea, and it's, I mean, I, I don't know that I can follow up everything that you detailed there, Stefan, but like this whole idea that um, legislation and enforcement of legislation is not critiqued nearly to the level that it needs to be, particularly, of course, when we're talking about U.S. history, which of course has one of the, and, and I'll be a little bit outspoken here, one of the most morally and ethically bankrupt forms of enforcement, um, historically speaking, that we can look at. Evidentially, and COINTELPRO is just one of many examples, and we could take this all the way back to the first policing being um, taking uh, action against runaway slaves, right, in Virginia. Like that, that's where policing in the United States begins, um, and it kind of continues on from there. And it does not do nearly a good enough job because the filmmakers stop just short of telling the whole story here. They're too busy trying to maybe rationalize um, and even in some ways idealize um, in this case, what is is blatantly the enemy of the people? In this case, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, um, and it that that goes beyond a shadow of a doubt. There's a great documentary um, about this called 1971. It's not about people of color. It's about actually just five individuals that broke into what a Pennsylvania. I want to say somewhere in Pennsylvania, yep. one of the FBI. Think they're the ones that actually blow the lid off COINTELPRO. But yes. COINTELPRO was an attack on Black Power. It was attack on Brown Power. It was attack on Red Power. It was attack on women. It was attack on the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and, and, and we have this all documented. And the fact that then we go back to your earlier comment, uh, which surrounded the notion of copaganda, we, yeah. that copaganda exists to offset the actual reality of what takes place in policing, especially here. Yeah. Laws are, and this goes back to even our ancient origins as humans, always put together from the top down, not to yeah. preserve the safety and welfare of every individual, but the safety and welfare of those at the top, those that have exploited their way to the top of the proverbial pyramid. And that's where all law comes from and always will. I think it's important uh, what you say there, Jared, is that is that to note that, that, that um, at the same time, this program also is as as the FBI does multiple times is also going after the KKK, but is simultaneously in bed with the KKK at times. Um, um, they they are actually like breaking up KKK operations, but at the same time they are leveraging KKK uh, tactics, KKK informants, um, and things like that. Um, the the FBI has this long tradition of um, of uh, getting in bed with the criminal element, you know, um, mm -hmm. Hoover, of course, famously um, claims that the mafia doesn't exist. At the same time, he, the FBI is in bed with the mafia to defend American docs during World War II. So um, it's nothing new um, for the FBI. But I will say in relation to this film, and, and one thing I want to point out just from the film aspect and um, – the, the accuracy of, of, of the story, quote unquote, is that um, film is, is kind of a, an interesting medium. It's predominantly a, a visual medium. And so when we talk about like the accuracy of things in Hollywood, some, um, when it comes to historical um, treatments, we have to remember that ultimately the goal here is that they're, they're trying to tell a story. And so the directors and the writers and the filmmakers are going to make choices in films that are going to deviate from the story. Um, one of the great examples of this is the film Amistad, where you have a scene where several of the people who are enslaved Africans are having a conversation with each other. And the filmmakers were 
you know, they know they were well aware that these Africans would have come from several different parts on the continent and they wouldn't mm -hmm. have spoken the same language. They wouldn't have shared a common language. However, to convey the drama of the situation they were in, they needed to have these characters have a dialogue. And so they, they have them, of course, all speaking to each other as if they shared a common language to get that impact. And something similar happens in this film. At the beginning of the film, J. Edgar Hoover is giving a, a briefing to a bunch of FBI agents um, and he's giving this briefing to them about, um, the, the operations that they are going to be, uh, engaged in. Now we know that the things that, that he says in this scene, that the character says in this scene are things that are pulled directly from these, these documents from the COINTELPRO documents. So none of the information that he's giving out is untrue as far as the way they're going to do these things, what they're going to do. Um, the wording may be changed a little bit, but the actual like thrust of, of, of what they're doing is all accurate. But of course, this meeting never happened. But that's the difference in a film between they're showing it in a visual ray. Otherwise, you know, what are they going to do? They're just going to scroll a bunch of documents across the screen. That's not going to work. I've got a quick question, um, though. You know, for I had a, a quick question for you, Stefan. Yeah. Do you, do you think that they yeah. could have done... Like, I get that they had to show it in a visual way, but do you think they could have done a better job at having the FBI in more frequent meetings to really press home the point that they were the antagonists, right? Because like like Jared said, I mean, uh, like Nick said, they were the antagonists. And I talked to my cousin like a couple of weeks ago, and he's saying like, fuck O'Neill. Like, sure, fuck O'Neill, but still like, why are you saying fuck O'Neill like so like and being so adamant about that and not fuck the FBI for um, co like for, yeah. for like forcing O'Neill to be in a position to do something like that? You know what I mean? So I feel like the film did. Yeah. Yeah. No, so I, I totally feel like the agree. film could have did a better job, like you saying, of what they did in the beginning of the film of showing what was said in those documents in a way that. Mm -hmm. led to like other stuff that they did about well, the black pan to, to the black panthers in in a better way yeah. well and i think i think you no i, I think you're I, I totally agree with that and i think that the film definitely could have done a better job and i think the film it shows it a little bit but certainly not enough that what the fbi was doing and what the fbi uh does throughout this program, not just with O'Neill, but with several other people. And this is a tactic um, that has been adopted by local and municipal police departments nationwide today, is that they are um, leveraging people to become agent provocateurs, to become infiltrators, to become other things with the threat of, um, you know, and again, they show this a little bit in the film, but they offer the threat of either long jail sentences or other um, other things such as exposure and things like that, that are um, you know likely to get these individuals either sent to jail for a very long time or killed. And um, they are putting them in a essentially a no-win scenario and leveraging everything they can to leave a person no choice but to work for the FBI. And then, of course, the FBI rationalized it as, Oh, well, we paid them. <laughs> we paid them some money um, to do this. But that's not that's not the incentive. The incentive is you do this 
or you're going to spend the rest of your life in jail. We're going to throw you under the jail and throw away the jail sort of thing. Um, And I certainly think the film could have gone um, to much greater lengths to absolutely illustrate, illustrate that and illustrate the absolute lengths uh, of dirty deeds that the FBI and not just the FBI, but the local, um, as we see in the actual assassination of Fred Hampton, uh, the lengths that the police were to go to, you know, we now have, you know, um, in the early years we didn't have, but now years later and, and shortly thereafter, even we have all these documents of the map that they had of where Fred Hampton was going to be. And they, we have all of the other documentation of, you know, what they were doing. And then there's the fact that, you know, there's one, um, one shot fired that we uh, know of from a black Panther. And this shot is a vertical shot after they had, this person had been shot and was down on the ground and they're, their round goes up into the air and they, uh, these Chicago PD officers who were involved in this raid, they fired 90 rounds. And, and the majority of them are targeted on the spot where based on the map that they have received, they knew Fred Hampton. was. And then we, we now also know that, you know, he is, he, those don't kill him. He is killed by two shots straight down mm-hmm. into the head. He was literally assassinated. And I think it's important to note the arrogance of these officers, not only the FBI who are trading these documents, the quote unquote confidential documents, the absolute surety that they uh, that they were in the right, that they're sharing these documents. But the arrogance of the police officers who knew that they weren't going to be prosecuted and they never were um, because they walk away from this. And leave the building. So in the days after Fred Hampton is killed, thousands of people go through uh, through his through this apartment and take pictures and photographs. So there's amazing um, documentation of this uh, of the location of this event because they didn't even um, list it as a crime scene, which is a tactic that we see time and time again um, when they do things wrong. Um, this happens when there's like uh, bombings up in Denver. Um, here doing uh, uh, some of the protest movements and stuff like that. The police don't label these as crime scenes because then there's no official investigation. There's no paper trail. So, uh, go, were you going to say something, Nick? Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, like Stefan said, we have so much information that's come out of COINTELPRO, Freedom of Information Act uh, information that's come out. But the one thing I always find interesting related to this story is People have applied for William O'Neill's FBI file and the FBI has come back. There's it's on Muckrock. You can find the submission and this back and forth over the past few years. The FBI has basically said, yes, like this request has been approved. It might take us some time to process this paperwork. And they've been dragging their feet for I think it's four years at this point that they absolutely will not release this. Because, and, you know, I mean, we all can suspect why, because there's a lot of information in there that is going to paint both the FBI and the local law enforcement in a really, really, really bad light. And, and to be clear, O'Neill's been dead since 1990. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> I mean, that's no surprise. I mean, even even right. more famed figures of Dr. King and Martin Luther or Martin <laughs> Malcolm X, both their files are still sealed to this day. People don't realize mm-hmm. that, but they're still sealed. Right. The FBI has mm-hmm. still sealed those files regarding their assassinations. Anyway, right. moving forward. It seems pretty clear that across the, the panel here, uh, we're in agreement. The major critique is um, that uh, all layers of enforcement are not deconstructed and, to be blunt, vilified the way they should be. Um, 
What Although I will say where I want to give a lot of credit is the final scene of the assassination. While I was watching the film, the whole time I was like, oh, my God, this is so good thus far. And like we all know that scene's coming, right? So I'm like, I wonder how that's going to go down. And they did it, like in my opinion, perfectly. Like there was no compromising there. I think that they depicted yes, that agreed. like as real as they could have. Well, that's the transition I was going with. So oh. we just spent 10, 15 minutes um, talking about what the film did wrong. Now mm-hmm. let's talk about like what the film did right. Mm-hmm. Open floor. Well, that's one. That scene was yeah. really, really good. And it's like, like I give this lecture in class on the Black Panthers in our uh, resistance and revolutions class and people like literally come to me and like, there is no way like that could be real. Cause I depict like, you know, what the documents say. And like Stefan said, we can look at pictures of the scene the next day. Like literally they didn't lock down the scene like idiots. And so people, you can find pictures of like the next morning, the public is just lined up down the street waiting yeah. their turn to walk through the scene. Right. So there's like news crews there. And like, so we have video and pictures and like, it's all there. And so people in class will be like, there's no way that really happened. They'll come back the next day and be like, oh, my God, I Googled. And that is really what happened. And I'm like, yeah, like there's I'm not making this up. Like This is real life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that happened. I think the film does. An, uh, 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 at the end, uh, it gives us a little bit of a title card and it talks about the fate of, um, of William O'Neill mm-hmm. and how um, it, it shows like a little clip uh, kind of at the opening at the end of the film of his interview that comes out on um, – Eyes with the prize too. Mm-hmm. And, and then it talks about the night that that premiered, he walks into traffic and commits suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I think there's an important, important thing that's mentioned at the end of the film that when Fred Hampton is killed, he's 21 years old. So think about that in the context of, again, the narrative that we are fed um, mm-hmm. in America, that Martin Luther King's way is the correct way to do protest if you're if you're black or brown of course you know if you're white you can go throw you know expensive tea that was shipped from halfway around the world in, in the uh uh in the water extremely expensive tea or attack the capital and you're fine you're, you're good um, you're good you can tar and feather people you can do all these other things mm-hmm. and that's and that's okay if you're but if you're if you're black or brown you need to do it why can't you be more like martin luther king and martin luther king is presented and 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 I mean, he's, you know, uh, every academic institution in the nation um, uh, deconstructs his letter from Birmingham jail because it's probably one of the best examples of rhetoric um, that we have. Um, he, 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 uh, he, he's an amazingly intelligent man. He knows how to leverage um, rhetorical devices to get his points across. He's a very mature um, individual, and, and, and he presents himself that way. Um, Fred Hampton, by contrast, is a young man and a very charismatic speaker. If you watch Fred Hampton's speeches um, and you watch um, the way he does these things, and this is another thing I think the film does well, you know, it shows Fred Hampton out in front of these crowds, gathering these people together and chanting, I am a revolutionary. And I think Mm -hmm. it, it just nails that aspect of Fred Hampton. He's a very charismatic, powerful character. But when they kill him, he is 21 years old. And that is, I think, vital to note that he is a contrast to this narrative of, of doing things Martin Luther King's way. He's a young man. He has revolutionary, very radical ideas in comparison. Of course, we, we all know, uh, um, those of us who have you know looked deeper into these things, that Martin Luther King's views were starting to change at the end of his life, particularly in the last year of his life. He delivers a lot of speeches 
against Vietnam. He delivers speeches where he uh, rails against capitalism. He delivers sermons and speeches where he says that he can no longer um, um, talk to the to the men of the northern northern ghettos and tell them that violence is the wrong answer when his own government is the greatest purveyor of violence on earth. Um, his views are, are really starting to change um, radically um, when he's assassinated. But the image that we get of Martin Luther King is this image of of um, of this of this great paragon of virtue to the point that uh, you know our former mayor here in the in, in the town that I'm in of Colorado Springs basically at one point uh, uh, in a, in a uh, online call-in thing said that the difference between Martin Luther King and BLM was that Martin Luther King never broke the law. Um, and how absurd is that when I just said the letters from Birmingham jail are like taught at like almost every academic institution around the world. It's not like Martin Luther King went down to Birmingham and asked them if they could throw him in a jail cell so he could have a quiet place yeah. to write these letters. Right. You know, um, but that's the image that what's, people what's have. What's this mayor's name? Let's put him on blast. Yes. Uh, that was Souther that said that, uh, our, our, our lovely, Souther, uh, yeah. uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Souther there. Yeah. Um, but the, um, the, um, you know, this, that's this image that we have of, of Martin Luther King of, that is presented in the media, that he was the right way. Fred Hampton is a revolutionary. He's unabashedly communist. He's unabashedly uh, about the community and about the collective. He is um, radical, vocal, and outspoken, and he's doing this at an extremely young age. You know, most of the things that he's doing is he's building his way before his assassination. He's doing it at the ages of 18, 19, 20 years old. And I think that's something that absolutely um, has to be mentioned. And, you know, the film does mention it um, there in the end. Um, and I think that comes out in when he's giving this speech, it's his like youth and vigor. And I think the film does that extremely well. And I think that's why the FBI was so terrified of him. Like if listeners don't know, that's where the title, the black Messiah comes from. Hoover in his memo says like the role of COINTELPRO by any means necessary is to prevent the rise of a black messiah. And he's specifically referring to Hampton, who is so young and has has such a level of success organizing and motivating people at such a young age that he's terrified of what Hampton is capable of, you know, his skills and his charisma and so forth. Um, yeah, so that's where the term the Black Messiah comes and, from. Also in the same just, memo. Go ahead. Not, not just African-American people. Like, you know, like I said before, mm-hmm. he's uniting across racial lines. He's uniting across several lines. And that right there is what, you know, puts this, this concept of the Black Messiah on him and terrifies Hoover and terrifies the FBI because, you know, they have all these tactics and things for handling people who are, um, quote, unquote, sticking within these racial lines and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But going outside that, that's something that really, really scares them. Which I think the film does a really good job depicting is the Rainbow Coalition and Hampton's mm-hmm. efforts there. Because that's one of the really, really important things that he does, like you said, is go along, go across racial lines and start putting people together to face a common enemy in a ways, ways that hadn't been done before. And I also sure. want to point out mm-hmm. the fact that I feel yes. like the okay. film does it doesn't like explicitly hit on it but it kind of does like fred hampton is very educated right and 
he didn't have to get his education necessarily from these ivory institutions that like I'm a part of, even though I'm, I'm critiquing the fact that I'm getting this, uh, this degree. Right. But like he didn't have to get that degree in order to do what he felt like was right. And I feel like that is also important to let people mm -hmm. know that. You don't have to go to college or anything like that in order to affect change that you want to see. You can just do it in a way and you can get educated in a way that you that doesn't require you to go in debt for one or doesn't require you to have to do all these other jump through all these hoops. So I feel like Fred Hampton is an example of that for people who might feel like, oh, well, if I didn't go to college, I can't do the mm -hmm. things that I want to do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, th I think it's important. That's so important to note that Fred Hampton, one of the reason he, he kind of gains this, uh, this, this title of a black messiah, it, it, when he's talking to this group, um, already, of course, African Americans are in this position um, of having the code switch. African Americans live both in African American society, and we live in the in the predominant, uh, um, white dominant society. And so we uh, are very used to switching between the speech patterns and the mannerisms of those um, um, two different worlds. And, and you, will, you will see very different behavior um, a lot of times from African-Americans, whether they're in um, an environment that is predominantly black or an environment that's predominantly white or, or mixed. And so Fred Hampton, though, has this amazing ability to talk to people um, at their level, quote unquote, if you will, he is able to articulate things in, in, in amazing ways. So he's able to use that, you know, for back, lack of a better term, street lingo, um, quote unquote, and talk to people um, in a very kind of uh, a co colloquial vernacular. And then he's very, very rapidly, boom, he's able to change into this very educated um, erudite manner of speech and deliver, um, again, some powerful rhetoric and things like that. And he's able to do that um, flawlessly. And that allows him, that's one of the things that allows him to bring all of these groups together because, and he's also has a keen insight to identify the commonalities um, across these racial lines and bring those all together. He's like this highly intelligent individual. And again, terrifying to the FBI. You want um, to take Fred Hampton, who's black, he's a member of the Black Panther Party, chairman of, of, you know, the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, and he's a communist. You want to you want to put together a, a combination that is the actual like epitome of white existential dread. That's it. He's black. He's armed. He's intelligent. And he's a communist. Terrifying. Terrifying. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's good. So concluding thought, um, our uh, channel, of course, is called Revolution and Ideology. From a social movement perspective, what do each of you think is the most important thing we can glean from, I guess, just the film as well as the actual real life, although the film does, as we've kind of discussed here, a pretty dang good job of following his real life. What's the most important thing we can glean from Judas and the Black Messiah and the amazing example Coalition of Fred Hampton? coalition building i feel like that is one of the most important things to do and um i'm gonna leave that there. i'm gonna see whatever y'all say i got one more other thing but coalition building for sure i'm gonna say 
the fact that we can tell predominantly black stories and that those stories do not have to follow uh, the force-fed, um, mythologized, quote-unquote, Martin Luther King narrative. Nick? All right, Stefan's still part of mine, so I'll switch it. <laughs> I, I would say, because this is sort of like the gist of the lecture when I give it in the context of the social movement class, right, is the lengths to which the state will go to to squash or opposition movement like we think of like well yeah like you know north korea or russia or like whatever but like people are so just unaware of the cointel program and unaware of just how far our government will go to the extent of murdering people completely discrediting them character assassinations real life assassinations i mean infiltrating every you know part of their lives etc um, I think that's a really, really important thing that people need to learn more about and really take seriously if they want to have any kind of, you know, success at changing yeah. the world. Dante, My what was second your second thought, thought? Was that education, right? I think Fred Hampton also really harped on the fact that, like, we got to educate the people, right? And I feel like that is that goes into like how we should educate each other as far as like our individual identities, right? Because I feel like if why why would I be afraid of a white poor person just because they're white when they're going through the same a similar struggle as I am right so I want to educate myself on like my neighbors I want to also educate myself so I can elevate myself to have the equipment in order to fight against the state because how of insidious they are. Right. And then I also want to like 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 uh, Nick was saying, and I also want to educate myself to the to like what Stefan was saying so that I can tell the stories of my people or, or of my people or of people who do um, the work that has been done to um, in systems of oppression that perpetuate. Right. So I feel like education is one of the most important things that I think I took away from this movie. Uh, from his movie being made, from Fred Hampton, and from the Black Panthers in general. I want to say one more point. I know this is supposed to be the conclusion, but Dante just made me think of something else that I think is really important role that this film plays. You know, in social movement scholarship, there's a term called continuity theory, and it's this continuity of the story of social change. And the idea is that one of the strategies by the status quo, right, by the oppressors, is to make every single movement appear as if it's an isolated thing. So like BLM is this new thing that, right, it's this new thing that has no connection to any past and like whatever, it's this new thing that we need to challenge. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the things that this film does is just demonstrate this connection that, you know, the black struggle has a long and rich history that's longer than the history of the United States. Right. And so we have to tell these stories, this entire history and fill in all the gaps so that we can identify that the modern movements are just modern manifestations of this struggle. It's not something new. It's not something that, you know, was just invented, that is completely disparate. It's part of a long, cohesive narrative that doesn't get told very often. And I think this film does a really good job of telling this portion of the story in a way that doesn't get told very often so that we can then all do the work to create this continuous narrative of this particular struggle.
That's why we frame it that way like in coursework, the long view of civil rights. Civil rights mm-hmm. was not about the 1950s and 60s. Civil rights mm-hmm. began um, in the 1400s with the first uh, Portuguese slaving ships off the coast of Africa. And we tell that story starting then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also like to usually equate it to music. If you listen to like the lyrics, uh, more modern lyrics of anti-policing songs of like Childish Gambino and so on and so forth. But then you juxtapose those with a mortal technique 10 years earlier and then 10 years earlier than that, Tupac. And then 10 years earlier than that, uh, Public Enemy. And then 10 years earlier than that... I, we could trace this all the way back and the story that like that, I mean, you can find it. That's the continuity right there all the mm-hmm. way back to like Marcus Garvey and so on and so forth, or what we're hearing um, uh, on chain Kings, right. During Jim Crow in the South, like the lyrics, the actual like discussion is still the same. So anyway, mm-hmm. um, all that stuff aside. So some of the lessons we've got education um, reclamation of narrative from Stefan. Um, a big one for me is coalition building. Um, it's not for this episode because I'm trying to close us out here, but one of my critiques, one of the reasons why people that are seeking social progress keep losing is they are divided along racial lines or specific topic, topical lines. We find ways to defeat each other more than the state oftentimes finds ways to defeat us. That's something that I think is very important. But regardless, I think we've got it all. I want to thank Dante and Stefan for coming on. Um, We're going to be doing more episodes with them in the future. I know we are. Uh, We've already done a handful with Dante. We'd like to get Stefan on more. Um, Anyway, that's all we got. Um, Nick, take us out. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please leave us a rating in your podcast app that will help more listeners discover our show. Also know that we have a YouTube channel where we post all of our episodes and other videos that we create. Just search for Revolution and Ideology in YouTube. If you really enjoy what we do and would like to support us further, you can do so at patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. Many thanks to our Patreon supporters who keep us motivated to create content. You can find more information on our website at revolutionandideology.com.